The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn in your Bible. It's good to follow when God's Word is being read. There's a pew Bible there as well if you don't have your own. Look to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, chapter 12. We began last time looking at lessons God might teach us through the life of this man Abram, as he's first called. Later, he will be Abraham. We're looking in the middle of Genesis 12. I'm going to begin at verse 10 and read into the beginning of 13 through verse 4. Listen to God's holy word. Now there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians say, see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me but let you live. Say that you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants, maid servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. This is God's Word. He intends us to learn from it and be fortified in trusting and following Him as we hear it. I'm not here to endorse today the political philosophy of President Franklin D. Roosevelt, but I would believe that few modern presidents ever spoke a truer sentence than the words of FDR when he was a new president speaking to the American people in the early days of the Great Recession, when this country was first gripped in a far greater economic collapse than you and I have seen in the last couple years. And Roosevelt 
said in a memorable moment, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I believe he knew that under the threat of economic collapse, people as individuals and as whole groups and even a whole nation could easily give ourselves into the hands of even greater disasters than were facing us if we would surrender to desperate solutions just to achieve self-preservation. And I know that FDR might have been talking to me, although I wasn't alive when he said those words. Because the words ring to me with a kind of shame as I think about times in my life when I would say that I was in some place positionally, personally, vocationally, where the Lord wanted me to be, and then some stiff wind of testing started to blow hard against me, and I panicked. And I sought my own clever solutions to how to get out of this, until quite possibly on some occasions I would say I may have canceled good things that the Lord intended to do for me had I waited, had I sought after Him had I listened to him better. Last time we began to consider the walk of faith demonstrated by this man, Abram. He lived so long ago, 2,000 years plus before Christ. He began life in a moon-worshiping culture in the ancient city of Ur in eastern Iraq, modern-day location. A great city, a very sophisticated place, but certainly not a city where worship of the true God was known by anyone hardly. This man somehow, by God's choice, heard the inward prompting of the Spirit of God. He didn't have a book to tell him things, but God moved upon and took hold of his heart and his mind and pressed him to go to an unspecified land where the Lord had showed him and promised to him that he would be blessed and he would become a blessing through his many, many heirs of which at that moment he had none. Hebrews 11.8 summarizes what Abram did. He went out not knowing where he was going except he was going where God led. He passed the initial test of great faith coming to Canaan, not having any title deeds to one inch of real estate, but claiming the place that God would give as a possession to his heir, still unseen. In summary, we would say Abram had nothing going for him but the revealed Word of God, and yet he implicitly believed it and staked everything upon it. Now, that was wonderful faith, obedient faith. And yet here we are in the same chapter. We haven't passed very far in this man's biography as given here in Genesis. And now we suddenly find what looks awfully much like a sharp downturn in his experience. Of course, he didn't have a New Testament, so he couldn't read words that you and I can know from James chapter 1, where James said, "'Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials.'" of all kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith is intended to produce for you steadfastness so that you might become perfect 
and complete. Abram didn't have that promise from God, but he experientially saw the testing. A famine came, and this man went where food was known to be abundant, just like you all do when the first snowflakes fly, and all of a sudden the supermarkets have no more milk and bread and essentials of life. And people would say, well, what's wrong with that? Does being a person of faith mean giving up your common sense? If you don't have food, if the land is starving, you go where there's food. What's the problem? Well, the account of Abram's journey into Egypt and back, I grant you, is given us at face value here. There's no commentary by Moses, the author of Scripture, to say this was a bad thing or here's why it was wrong. It's just reported without any moralisms being cast upon it. And yet, with his actions left to speak for themselves, everyone who reads this sees it as a failure of faith. Why? Well, it would seem we should say that when God calls you to go someplace, and he says, this is where I want you, plant your feet here, you ought to trust that he does not intend to have you starve while you're camping out in the place of his calling. And if we were to trust God for ultimate things in our lives, like eternal salvation and the great thing that Abraham had already trusted for, should we not equally trust him for the immediate things, the small things of everyday life? I think that's the main point of our text today. Let's take a look at this passage, Genesis 12, 10 and following, and I'm putting the first point in the form of a question. In practical trials, will we trust God or our fears? And I want to say parenthetically that I'm very grateful for Abraham's failures. In fact, I'm grateful for in God's providence that a failure is given so quickly after a great success. Because I would have a hard time dealing with this man if he was one of God's stainless steel saints with the gold halo who never did anything wrong. If all he ever showed was an example of faith 110% of the time, I, I think I would turn him off. Because I could not identify. That's not like me. That's not authentic. But thank God that even in the great examples he gives us in Scripture, the ones he holds up and says, here, believe like this person, we see that it's a person very much alive, very real, warts and all. And by the way, isn't that part of the authenticity of God's Word? If we were writing a fictional book about people of great faith, we wouldn't get the bad side of people. We wouldn't get David committing adultery. Well, in the beginning of Genesis 12 here, we have Abram responding so wonderfully to challenges. But all of a sudden, the simple announcement comes in verse 9, He goes down to the Negev, which is the desert area. It's not very green down there. And while he's down there in the wilderness, verse 10 says, a famine came in the land. Now, famines were common there. If you ever visit Israel or that whole area, one of your dominant impressions, if you've never been in the Middle East, is to come back. I remember coming back in 1997 and saying to my wife, now I know what the Bible means about a dry and thirsty land where no water is. Because it is, indeed. If you don't have irrigation, if you don't have careful agricultural cultivation, there's hardly anything green. Things don't grow. 
with careful agriculture, things can grow and do in that land. But there were times when there was serious food shortage. And in such a time, once again, isn't it just common sense to say, well, if, if there's a country a few hundred miles to the west that has abundant food, of course that's where you go. You go where the food is. And that seems obvious. And yet, on the other hand, we have to ask today, if God has absolutely situated you somewhere, led you and said, that's where I want you to be, isn't it reasonable that you would at very minimum ask him for direction before relocating? Common sense is a good thing. Don't let this message sound like a message against common sense. I would like to wish many more people in our world had much more common sense than some seem to possess at all these days. But it's very wrong for Christian people to think that the will of God is nothing but following common sense. It often is not. God's callings may take us in completely different directions across the grain of where everyone in the society thinks it is wise to move or to behave. And we need to be sensitive to that. Now, Genesis 12 marks the very first time in the Bible that we meet the name of this nation, Egypt. A famous land, of course, the land of pharaohs and pyramids, then the breadbasket of the Middle East because of a simple fact, the River Nile. A river which often flooded and, and ran its streams into the low-lying territory along the Nile Basin, plus the Egyptians had dug canals that that took irrigation into far parts of the land, and they were very good at, at growing things, grain in particular. So they always seemed to have food when other places had none. And, of course, that came true later on when Joseph was there, the son of Jacob. You know that later story in the end of Genesis when Joseph uh, gathered together all the grain for plentiful years to save for the famine years. But there's something else to know about Egypt, not just its physical aspect of of being a place where food grew. There's another aspect of it that has overtones for what is before us here, and that is the fact that Egypt is a kind of symbol in the Bible as a nation. It's a symbol of being the first world great superpower, or at least in that time it was the superpower. There may have been some before it. And it, therefore, was regarded by God as a a political entity that people would put their trust in, perhaps to the neglect of trusting God. Isaiah 31, verse 1, has a warning along that line, and, and these kinds of things are found in other Scriptures. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses and the multitude of their chariots, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel. You see, Egypt was a kind of symbol of political power, solving it man's way, getting government to do it for you. We won't wander down that track too far this morning. Egypt represents putting your trust in human resource versus trusting God and waiting on His direction. It represents the natural choice, the natural refuge that fear runs to, politics, government, power, rather than the resources of an unseen but true God. Now, secondly, then, I want you to look at the steps that Abram took as he did trust his fears rather than faith, 
And in fact, I call them steps of unfaith. I'm going back to the days of the uncola, if you can remember that. If you're very young, you don't remember that. Steps of unfaith on a detour into Egypt. And the foremost one of the, these steps is pretty obvious. It isn't stated in the text, and yet it's, it almost shouts at you for its absence here. The apparent failure of Abram to pray. He encountered an obstacle, a famine. Here's how verse 10 might have read. Now there was a famine in the land, and the man of faith bowed before the Lord and said, O Lord, what am I to do? And then he went down to Egypt. But it doesn't say that, does it? It says, Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt. He was totally responsive only to the circumstance before his eyes. And yet here was a man who had built altars, already several of them, to the Lord. And an altar implies worship, and worship implies a life of prayer. He was, after all, driven to do this whole thing by the Spirit of God stirring him and gripping him. He was a man who communicated with the Lord. And yet, in the feeling of this physical pinch of hunger, we have no sense here at all that he sought after God's will. Famine came, Abram left. Well, when you aren't in touch with God's direction, then you're going to obey the common wisdom of the society or anybody who comes along who offers you some kind of solution. I can picture Abram going to the Bedouins in the Negev area and saying, well, what's a man to do? There's no food available here. What are you living on? Where are you getting it from? And every Bedouin he met had an arm pointed to the west. Egypt, that way. Food is that away. I wonder if maybe Abram even thought, well, this was something the Lord didn't count on. And maybe the Lord didn't even know about this, and he just is leaving me to work at things out on my own and see what kind of a resourceful man I am. And so I'll just deal with this and do what everybody else is doing. But there's a real sense in which Abram is pushing the panic button here and abandoning the place where the Lord had called him to be. Have you ever done this or anything like it? I know the answer to the question because I'm assuming you're at least somewhat like me. And I know I've sure done this. Along comes a problem in life, a, a challenge. We're up against an economic problem, a vocational issue, some kind of opposition, something tough that, that just seems to completely block the way and there's a sense in which those of us who are control people, I'm sure it will come as a great surprise to all of our elders to know that I'm a control person who likes to be in control, that we have to do something. And there's that sense in which control people start to do something or almost anything because you don't just sit there and do nothing. And so you start trying things out that seem right to you and it feels like as long as you're busy trying to work out a solution, one or the other of them is going to fall into place and something is going to move you forward. But are these not exactly the times, and God has had to teach me this lesson by hard, hard ways, are these not exactly the times when we should stop and be still to know that God is God and listen 
long and carefully to our Lord in his word before taking wild windmill action on our own. I can say that the corrective for Abram would certainly have been to simply pray earnestly and say, Lord, you know that I'm in this land of Canaan. You brought me here. It was your intention that I be here. Now here's this famine. Lord, what in the world do you want me to do? I have to eat. I've got a lot of people with me. How should I deal with this? What do you have in mind for me, Lord? Help me. Lead me as you already have so faithfully. But for all appearances, Abram simply did not do that in any way in facing the famine. He didn't pray. Another step of unfaith for him was that he played deceptive games with the truth. Now, you need to know, you probably do, but maybe some do not, The latter part of chapter 11 will tell you and other places that give the information about Abram's background is an unusual fact. He was married to his half-sister. He and Sarai had the same father, different mothers. Now, your sensibilities about who should marry whom say, wait a minute, that isn't supposed to happen. Well, in our society today, it does not. And in fact, in the laws of Moses given later, that kind of marriage was forbidden. But in these earlier times, marriages of closer relations that way were happening, and it wasn't unheard of at all. He had his half-sister as a wife. Now, I found it kind of amusing. I was telling my wife as I read a number of commentaries about this, and remember, Abram's 75 years old, and we know that Sarai was a little younger, thinks she was around 65, there are quite a few commentators that get themselves into quite a lather about, about the fact that a 65-year-old woman could be that beautiful. Uh, I'm on your side on this one, ladies. Because I, hey, I'm married to one who has a six, uh, six-something. Let's just leave it at that. And she's gorgeous. And I don't understand any commentator who has to get excited about somehow proving to the world that a 65-year-old woman could be beautiful. You must be 30 years old if you're that kind of a Bible commentator, and you've got a lot to learn. Nevertheless, Abram said, I've got a beautiful wife. She's a knockout. And I know that other men would love to have her as their wife. Well, here's how the culture operated in those days. Apparently, it was... uh, kind of a violent uh, time. And if another man said, boy, I'd love to have that woman to be my wife, even if I've already got one or two or three or four, I'm going to take her. And if she's got a husband, well, maybe in the dark of night, he's going to find a knife in his back or something. And that kind of thing happened. But amazingly, if there were other males in her life, a brother, an uncle, a father, who was the protector of that woman, things went differently. You negotiated with the male relative for a bride price. And so basically what Abram's saying here is, look, I can keep myself safe, and actually you too, Sarah, because I'm a good negotiator. I'm just going to keep the price high. Anybody who comes along is going to have to negotiate with me, and you know, I'll start so high that, that he'll never succeed, and we won't have that problem. Well, in his cleverness and in his deceptiveness, he didn't reckon with one thing, with one individual, in fact, the one man in the superpower of the Middle East who didn't have to negotiate for anything, Pharaoh. 
When Pharaoh saw something, be it a beautiful woman or a beautiful horse to ride or anything else, he took it and decided later what somebody would be paid for it. And so in his attempt to use the truth in a deceptive way, a partial truth, he not only endangered his wife, she indeed was taken from him. Ironically, Abraham was paid. He got lavish rewards, we're told here, of the things that were given to him for this. Pharaoh wasn't stingy. He paid in cattle and servants and donkeys, even camels. The commentators get excited about that because this is about the period of time that camels actually were introduced to the Middle East. They came from further east than that in India and other places. And to have a camel was to have, you know, the really latest thing. This is like the loaded luxury SUV, a camel. And Abraham got multiple camels, so he really got paid well. But you know, as he heard all those animals, donkeys, braying, and I don't know what camels do. They make a terrible noise if you've ever heard them. It must have sounded to him like the voices of a chorus mocking him because his deceitfulness had completely collapsed. It didn't work. Young people, it's an easy thing to go out into this world with a little piece of truth and think, well, I'm kind of telling the truth. I'm telling them as much as they need to know. But if your intent and your goal is to use a little bit of truth and represent it as the whole thing, you're going to pay for it at some point along the way. And so we have this miserable picture now of Abram in in verse 16. He's bungled it. He's suddenly rich, but he's despondent, and he doesn't have his wife and he cannot extricate either himself or her from this mess. That is the detour of unfaith. What happens next? I love the simple way this passage turns around at verse 17. With the words, but the Lord. Some of you know to look for those words in the Bible as you get a depiction of a human being sinning or wandering or doing something really dumb and getting wrapped up in their troubles, you read something like this, but the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. We don't know what the diseases were. We don't know how Pharaoh traced this to its root and said, this is because of Sarai. We're not given those details, but he did that and he knew that. And so we learn this third lesson, that when we are faithless, the Lord remains faithful. How many biblical scenes do you have human folly and then the words, but God? There have been great sermons preached on those two words, and there are many texts for such a sermon. For God's plan isn't thwarted here. A human being has wandered. He's He's gone into foolish things, but the God of the universe, the God of all providence, who put this world into being literally with a snap of his fingers and a voice of his mouth, this God isn't powerless. He isn't frustrated, and he doesn't have the least difficulty undoing this mess. Our God and King is one who specializes in situations where a frail human believer has dug himself or herself a hole so deep 
There seems to be no way out. He waits for that person to cry to him and say, Lord, look at me. The hole is deep. There's no way out. And we don't even know that Abram made that cry here. Nevertheless, the Lord acted on his behalf. You know what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13? It's a great word. It's very simple. It's a verse you ought to memorize. 2 Timothy 2.13. That promise announces if we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. God cannot be faithless. Now, you know, one of the problems when we talk about the faith of Abraham, when we start to hold him up as a model, is that you start to think, well, here was a man who possessed a great quantity of faith, a little bit like a doctor possesses a great quantity of medical knowledge, or I don't know, somebody who's a specialist, an auto mechanic possesses a great quantity of knowledge of what makes a car work. And people think, well, faith, that's something you sort of accumulate and you have it in your, your spiritual storage vault. And it, and it works almost like the, the light in the refrigerator. You know, every time you open the door, it's just on, right? I haven't changed a refrigerator light bulb. Maybe my wife has, I don't know. In decades, I, I don't even remember ever doing it. She'll probably tell me she did it last week. But, you know, it's just there. It, it, you know that little game people play? They try to close the door and peek in to see if it's shut off yet before the door closes. But faith is supposed to be like that, right? You just open the door and boom, faith beams out. Well, we're learning here that's not the way faith works at all. It's not like a skill you've learned that you're just going to always have. It's not like the thermostat that just goes on because it's cold. Faith is a muscle that needs to be exercised and used and applied or it atrophies. And it needs to be applied to particular situations, not just the great situation of our salvation. We say, oh, I had faith when I was eight years old. I asked Jesus to be my Savior. Praise God. That's a marvelous thing. I, I hope that you can know in your life that that has happened. But don't think that the faith switch has just been turned on in your life, and that's it. Faith is something you take and apply to these situations of everyday life. Jesus said we must have faith like a helpless little baby that relies on its parent to pick it up and feed it and carry it from place to place. And so faith has to say to the Lord, Lord, I am so weak in my faith, but thank you that you will always be faithful. You can't disown yourself, so I trust you today, now, with this difficulty, just as I have for the great things like my salvation. Now, don't miss, as Abram exits from Egypt, the manner of his going. Pharaoh gave the man a good rebuke. You wonder why he didn't act even tougher. It was a pretty stinging reprimand from a pagan who didn't honor God, who just gave him a verbal thrashing and said, why did you deceive me this way? And Abram went in disgrace and in humiliation, which is often the way we're going to feel in the aftermath of using our own devices over against trusting in the Lord. I think it's, it's a neat thing that Pharaoh didn't ask for a refund. You know, he should have said, okay, here's your wife back, and how about if I get all those camels and donkeys and men servants? And No, 
Abram took all that stuff with him. And it says he left Egypt a rich man. And somebody could say, aha, yeah, the end justifies the means. Look, he got rich by being tricky, by trusting in worldly things. Well, if you think it was a good thing to have these riches that Abram had, let me remind you of one item in the caravan going north out of Cairo back towards the Negev. It was actually not an item. It was a person, a young teenage girl who had been given to Sarai to be her handmaid. Her name was Hagar. And it was in this hour of disobedience that Hagar came into the picture to become a much larger stumbling block to the faith of Abram and Sarai later on. The scars we get in our times of unfaith have a way of lingering and staying with us for consequences later on. But notice in conclusion the redemptive pattern is here. At the beginning of chapter 13, it says, Abram went back to Bethel where he had first built an altar, and there he called upon the name of the Lord. That's why I'm able to say to you so declaratively, I don't think he prayed in the second half of chapter 12 because it points out to us that he prayed now. When he got back to the altar and he said, Lord God, what a fool I was. Here I am offering sacrifices to you. I want to be your man. I want to follow you. I want to trust you. Hallelujah, there's rescue for our times of terrible stumbling. God restored this believer, humbled as he was. Abram wasn't cast off because of a big mistake. Nor will you be as you return this way to the Lord. Trials in the realm of practical things are God's way of testing our faith. Circumstances. That probably isn't going to be a worldwide famine for you, but what will it be? Something in your employment life? Working for a new supervisor, a new boss who's very difficult? Maybe losing your job? Some kind of a family crisis, a bad relationship with a family member or a son or a daughter? Financial distress? There's all kinds of things that qualify for this famine circumstance. Will we face these things with prayer and implicit trust in the God who has led us this far? Or will we just resort to our own clever devices and do it the way anybody in the world would do it to find an escape? We need to learn to be less occupied with our threatening circumstances and more consumed with the greatness of our God. Like a coin with a head and a tail side, every single event in life has a potential to go one way or the other, leading us toward God's faithfulness or away from trusting Him. Faith, you see, hasn't finished its work the first day that you were called to name Christ as Savior. We are called to trust God for immediate leadings again and again in daily life as well as for ultimate things. And so for you, a great Scripture promise is what I offer you in closing. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, in the details, acknowledge Him. And He will straighten your paths. Our Father, help us in this walk. 
There's difficult times facing some folks here that are every bit like famine. And the world says, "Why, goodness, I know what you need to do. And some of us have gone off and done that, and things seem worse. We pray, O oh God, that you would teach us to wait on you in prayer, to listen to you, to acknowledge your word, and to trust you. Thank you for being a God who remains faithful when we are faithless. Show us your glory in these things, for Jesus' sake. Amen.